Well, I've been here before for uh, not for a service. I did a men's breakfast one time, and I was here just a couple weeks ago for a gathering of pastors. It was really fun to be here with you and to meet most of you before the service. It was great. Um, hold the picture yet, but I, I grew up in South Dakota. Two years ago, I was at a, a, a church, two church leaders thing here in Chicago, St. Peter's. I'm sitting next to this guy, and uh, he asked if I was from, and I told him I'm from Chicago, I'm from South Dakota. And he goes, oh, do they talk funny like in that movie Fargo? And I said, well, kind of. And I says, as it happens, I happen to be going to Fargo in about two weeks to speak. And he looked at me like this and goes, there really is a Fargo? So some of you have been in Chicago too long. You didn't know there was anything outside. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and by the way, I so appreciate your pastor. He has a good one who loves you and is committed to you. And uh, I was trying to remember if I'd ever heard him complain about you. I don't think I have. He's just a, a faithful, loving pastor. Not that there's nothing to complain about. I'm just saying he doesn't do it. Uh, let me show you a picture. I was thinking about coming here today. This is my home church. Down the end of that. Oh, hold on. Hold on. And go to the end of four. showing up there, 1,500 people. We never locked our doors. I didn't even know we had a key for our house, but literally we never had a key. We left the keys to the car in the car. There were no stoplights. No spare gear. So not so much to like here. And then this is the church that I grew up in. It's, uh, it's been replaced now with a new building. In fact, it grows. to say, here I'm coming to a small church in Chicago, and this is the small church I know, and uh, in some ways they're really different. Everybody, when I was growing up there, everybody in the church was a farmer, except for my dad, and he was the business manager for a cattle ranch, and of course the pastor. Uh, I think it's a little more diverse now, but uh, when I go home, invariably, people will say, oh, I couldn't handle all the traffic. And I go, well, there are some advantages to living in a city or a suburb. There are some things that, you know, it's 60 miles from my dad's house. So uh, there's that. We didn't have any franchise. Well, we didn't have hardly anywhere to eat. When we go back, uh, we usually have to eat at the gas station because it's the only place you can get a sandwich uh, at, the, at the gas station. So it's a whole different world. But, but there's this thing in common. Your church and the church I grew up in and every church I've been in. And that is that the big job before us is that we have to love one another. And it's a challenge everywhere. Sometimes it's a pure delight and sometimes it's not. But at the heart of everything is we have to love one another. Years ago I heard and learned this little uh, poem. Um, to live above... 
with, not, I guess it was right. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> so that's what I want to talk to you about today. As we've been, as Tim told me, we've been in this series about um, community and about the life of your church together. And uh, so it just seems like a good, good thing to talk about. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, you love these people. You love the people in these apartments and brownstones and stuff around here. You know their names. Whereas this church is trying to pray for everybody, you know them all. And I pray you bless them. And as they pray, you would honor their prayers and bring your light and presence into the lives of these neighbors. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that I get to speak to these folks today. And I pray you would make your word just come alive and uh, that it would burrow into our hearts, all of us. And thank you that we get to have this time together. Thank you for this church and for their uh, love for you and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. On the last night of Jesus' life, the night of the Last Supper, and then after that when he taught them and eventually took them out to the Garden of Gethsemane, John records from John 13 to 17 the core of all of Jesus' teaching. Most of what he says there he had never said before. And then he says these extraordinary things uh, to them. Uh, he talks about uh, that he's going to leave, the bearer says to Seth, he says, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and I'll come back and get you. He says to them that uh, uh, he'll send the Holy Spirit. He talks to them about how they need to live in Jesus like a, a branch of a vine. He talks about the suffering that is inevitable in the church for the believers. Right? Uh, there's all these fundamental things that he lays out to his believers, or to his disciples. The first thing he gets to is this business of loving one another. <clears throat> and he repeats it. It's striking. He repeats the same phrase three times in two verses. And that's where we're going to focus. So we're in John 13, verses 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. I'm going to put these verses up. I want you to read them with me. title for this sermon would be? How about on point, love one another? Not my most creative, but it seems to be on point. So let's make that our point today. And I want to just show you why Jesus says the same thing, sort of in triplicate, but each phrase is a little different. Each phrase has a little different meaning or reason for being there. He starts, a new command I give you, love one another. So the first point of the sermon, yes, love one another is Jesus' new command. The question that should come to anybody that knows much about their Bible is, what's new about it? 
because God had said 1,500 years before in the book of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, so what's new about this? In Leviticus 19, where this, uh, that command appears, there's a whole list of um, commands that God gave to the Israelites. So here's that. And I don't know if you can read all this. I'm not going to read it to you. I just want you to see that all the commands start with do not. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely. Bear one and no one falsely. All the way down to the one, one speech is do not bear a grudge against anyone in the name of Jesus, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's the context love your neighbor as yourself. If you see all those things together, you would conclude that to love your neighbor as yourself means do no harm. We're conscious of these things. We have many of them set into our own laws. <clears throat> but just here, just in the neighborhood, if you live here, these are things that you ought to obey. Every one of them. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new command. It's not this. He doesn't uh, renounce this. In fact, he teaches it elsewhere. And what are the two great commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. He teaches that. And he taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a parable, a story that reinforces what it means at heart to love your neighbor as yourself. But this is different. It's a new command. I just did what I did in a sermon once. I turned two pages in my notes. Only there I just kept going. And I got away and I go, what in the world? Is, what's going on here? I, I, I'm back on track. So what's new? Those commands in Leviticus were given as a kind of uh, the ordinances for a, a, a nation. This is how we behave in a civic society. Uh, and that's what they were for. But Jesus would soon invite other disciples to his table, besides the 11 who were still there. And they were not at all like the men who gathered there that morning or that evening. Not at all. Men and women from every station in life, from every country and language, members together of one body, the Bible says, all becoming brothers and sisters. That expression is used 139 times in the New Testament. Here's the thing. There is no record outside of the New Testament of people outside of the family unit being called brothers or sisters. Never happens. So when Jesus... You remember the story where Jesus is teaching and somebody comes and says, uh, uh, Rabbi, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he, he doesn't go, oh, I'll be right back. <laughs> he says, these are my mother and my brother and my sister. That was really radical. We're, we're used to hearing, you know, band of brothers and I was with my, you know, my brothers in my football team or whatever. Nobody talked like that ever. There's no record of it. So when Jesus accumulates a new household, a new family, 
in effect, puts them at the same table, the table we're going to go to today. And he says, we're all brothers and sisters. That is a radically new thing. And it changes the nature of what it means to love one another. Because it's all these people. It, the problem isn't how many there are. The problem is how different they are. Your church is a good example of that. The church we attend in Rockford, where we live now, is like that. People that are all different from each other. That's what's so beautiful about a church. It's just so beautiful. But it only works if we love one another. And that's what he's saying. Another thing that's new is that our love for one another in the church is essential for our growth as disciples of Jesus. We can't really follow Jesus without being together. You know as well as I do that there are a lot of Christians who seem to think they can get just they get along on their own just fine. We have this expression that we've probably all heard, or most of us have anyway, it's, been kind, of, it's kind of an American expression for Christians. And we speak of our personal walk with Jesus. Well, we do have a personal walk with Jesus. But the Bible talks a lot about our congregational walk with Jesus. We can't grow in our faith without being part of a local church. Not only because we need the preaching, because you can watch online. You can watch anybody. You can watch better preachers than me or Tim online. That's not the same. When we are together in a community and we stick together, whether it's easy or not, whether we understand each other or not, when we do that, the, the rubbing of that and the joining of that is essential to our growth as Christians. You know, our singing. We're not great singers, but we sing together. We pray together. When we have a baby or a death or a sickness, we help each other. We do it at, at a sacrifice. And on the other hand, we receive that when we are in need. And this is how that practicality of loving one another changes us. And if we don't have that, if we try to do church or be Christians without any of that, it's impossible. And there are so many Christians who think they can. And it's, it's not possible. No Christian can mature very deeply without being part of a local church. No Christian can mature very deeply without being part of a local church. Because we need these things. We need to worship together. We need to have meals together. We need to do social things together. Because that's how we learn to love each other. Timothy Keller said, the glory of God is available to you in the church in a way that it's not available anywhere else. And that's true. You want to see God, you've got to be part of a church. There are other avenues also. God is, uh, makes himself known in lots of ways. But 
if you really want to see the full glory of God, you've got to be part of a church. And the weird thing is, there's nothing glorious about it. Well, I mean, look at this. Right? There's nothing here to go, wow. Whew, i got to walk out and make a glory to God. I see that thing in here. <laughs> but here's where God is. He's with us. And over time, we come to know God because he has a body. There's one more thing that's new. Oh, by the way, I wanted to mention this business of loving one another. Uh, it's not only repeated three times here in these two verses. The very words are repeated 12 times in the New Testament. There's no command in the Bible repeated so often. And if you take, if you move just beyond the, those exact words, I can't think of a single letter in the New Testament that doesn't have a substantial amount of content that's about the relationships in the church. Sometimes it's uh, scolding people for the bad relationships. Sometimes the verse you're memorizing are, are commending things that, of how we get along together. Every, every, every book in the New Testament has emphasis on this. Do you know that there are more verses about our relationships with each other in the church than there are about worship or prayer or evangelism combined. The reason being that this is the foundation under all the other good things a church can do. The church doesn't, if Christians aren't in relationship with each other, they really can't do these other things. Not effectively. The Bible doesn't even have a category for Christians who aren't loving one another in a local congregation. Hit it again. I'm, I'm so jumping around, I don't know if you can even follow me. All right, you got that. Now the next one. Hit it again. Yeah. That's good. I'm, you're very good. Here, I, I, He has a script and I'm not following it. I, I was seeing smoke kind of rising from the... So, here this. There's one more thing that's new. Christ's new standard goes beyond loving your neighbor as yourself. That, as you can see, our own love for ourselves, our, our um, attention to ourselves, was the moral standard for how we loved others. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a good law. And it works anywhere. And people can observe it whether they're Christians or not. It's, it's a fundamentally good moral law. And the point of reference is, how do you want to be treated? Treat other people that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus changes the point of reference in this. And he'll do it a little later on that same evening. In John 17, he is praying. The whole chapter is Jesus' prayer. He prays for the 12 apostles, or 11 apostles and he eventually prays for us. And in that, in John 17, this is what he asked. He asked his father that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. That's complicated, but what it's basically saying, instead of just loving one another as we love ourselves, we are drawn up into the loving relationship of the Holy Trinity. As, Jesus, as the Father and the Son love each other, so Jesus loves us, and we are in him, and we're up in that relationship. 
that's what's new about it. We can love each other as father and son love each other. Isn't that wonderful thing? Christians can love one another with the very love of the triune God because we live in the embrace of that love through the Holy Spirit. So it's not that we can't do it. Sometimes we run into some really tough things, really hard people to love, or circumstances where it's really difficult to even imagine what would the loving thing be. But we have this advantage that we can be, through prayer, brought up into the relationship of the Trinity. So not only do we love our neighbor as ourselves, we love each other in the church as the Father and Son love one another. And that's all that's new about it. Now, let's go to the second verse. Just for a moment, I have nothing to really think about. The second statement, verse 34. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. <clears throat> that's a little different than the other statement, isn't it? As I have loved you, you must love one another. This time, I love one another is shaped by as I have loved you. So here's our point. We must love one another as Christ has loved us. Remember that the setting here is the Last Supper. Now, John here never actually talks about the meal. Other uh, New Testament, the Gospels do. But John focuses on something else. He focuses on when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And it was an unforgettable example for them. And then, while they're still wet between their toes, he says, as I have loved you, love one another. Do it the way I've done it. The tough part of serving isn't the servant. Most of us, if we serve other Christians at church, we, we like that. We like serving. I like people. We like preparing meals. And we like each other. They're not, they're not hard necessarily. The hard part of serving is being treated like a servant. That's the part we don't like. <clears throat> you go to a restaurant you will never have a waiter walk up to you and go, Hi, I'm Todd. I'll be your servant tonight. I think that the food industry, I mean this, I think they invented the word server because you're not going to say, I'll be your servant. That's, that's like a format maybe. Maybe you're going to get treated badly. I'm not your servant. I'll serve you your food. Well, Jesus says, uh, not only are you going to be servants, lowly servants, but that's the lowliest servant is the highest regarded in the kingdom. He literally turns the tables. He elevated lowly service to become the measure of greatness. Now, when Jesus washed, the, will you put that picture up? Can you back up once to that picture of his, I don't know if you can see this very well, but this is a cool painting. You can look it up on your uh, phone or your computer. Again. It's by Ford Maddox Brown. <clears throat> and uh, just to help you look at it, I just love this painting. We had it hanging in our church, and one of the new people there got it out of hand. Peter's having his feet washed. Jesus is doing the washing. You can see Peter is kind of, kind of he's smiling, but he's got a lot of tension. What's going on? Well, I think 
was supposed to be gone. The young, I think, was looking over his shoulder. Uh, and then you see, if you had a really sharp picture, you'd see these other disciples at the table. Way back in the shadows is Judas. And you can tell it's Judas because there's a bag of money. And he's got this kind of gash look on him. And then I really like the guy on the far end on, on our left. He's just sitting there like he's reaching down. In this, Jesus gave his disciples and us a picture of what service means. But there's another passage of scripture, there's several, but there's sort of a, a, a particular God description of what's involved. And I was really surprised this morning when I got here to hear that that's the verse you're memorizing. And uh, the thing is, we're going to look at that, was just, I'm not going to really go over them much, but in Colossians chapter 3, Verses 12 to 14, the part you started. Here's this list of um, virtues that Christians are to practice. The thing you could miss, if you're not thinking about them, is everyone is relational. You can't do any of these things on your own. It means nothing to be humble if there's nobody around, right? Humility means you're in relation to somebody. And they're all, not only all relational, they are all costly. They're all costly. It's hard to do these things, at least sometimes. So let me just walk you through them, and I just want you to hear. It's just what we just did, and I'll take you a little further. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he loves us, clothe yourselves with compassion. Cha-ching! That's expensive. Compassion is expensive. Costly sometimes. Kindness. Cha-ching. Right? It costs you something. Humility. Cha-ching. Gentleness. you got to have people around to be gentle. Cha-ching. Patience. Boy, that cha-ching. And then he goes on. Bear with each other. In the church, bear with each other. Don't just leave when you get frustrated. Bear with each other. Cha-ching. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Cha-ching. Anyone who's in a, is in a church very long has somebody to forgive because we hurt each other sometimes. People can do the most thoughtless things. I had a friend said, uh, his professor in Bible college said, religious mean is the meanest mean there is. And that can be. It's also sweet sometimes how wonderful a church is. I don't want to just paint a negative picture. So all these are costly. And then he says at the end, and over all these virtues, put on love. Put that quote. Which binds them all together in perfect unity. I call these love's coat of many colors. Every act and attitude costs us something. Everyone is relational. These are the things that distinguish. This is what Christian love actually looks like. Jesus gave us a picture. Here's our job description. Every one of them takes some dying. 
Everyone requires a basin and a towel. But here's the wonderful bonus. When we love one another as Christ loves us, we become more like Christ. That's how we do it. You don't become more like Christ just from studying your Bible, no matter how you study it. You've got to put it into practice in relationships and, first of all, in the church. Because if you don't do it here, you're not going to do it well anywhere else. That's the point. It's not that these people are more important than those people. It's that here, in the intimacy of it, we learn the skills. Years ago, a friend sent me this picture. Uh, that was in our church up pretty much where Brother Tim Evans does it. <coughs> and one Sunday I was going to preach on this passage about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. So after I preached on it, I thought it'd be really we had we had that painting up on my screen. And you can't see, but Lonnie is over there. She's singing uh, Michael Card's song, The Basin and the Towel, which fit perfectly. And I wanted to have somebody wash somebody else's feet while this all happened. Pretty cool package, right? And so I asked the elders if there was somebody who would let, you know, would like to have their feet washed, and uh, Ed said he would. And then I was going to find somebody else to do the washing. And I tell you, it was in the summer. I tell you, I think everybody in town, in the church was going to be out of town that weekend. I called and called, and I ran out of time. And, you know, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It's just that I'm up in front all the time, and I thought it would be good for somebody else to have a chance. And, <laughs> and there was another time. Ed had really gotten under my skin. He's one of our elders. He's a great guy. He was a, a, a professional counselor. And not long before, uh, it had been a while because it had been brooding a while, probably been a couple months, <clears throat> he came to see me one day. He came in, he closed the door, and he says, there's no small talk. He said, Lee, you're depressed and you're angry and you need to see somebody about it. And I knew he was right. I just didn't know anybody else knew it. And it started a, a really healthy thing for me. I went to see a counselor for several months, and it kind of got my balance again, and it's helped me ever since. And I appreciate what Ed did. It was courageous to be so straightforward. If he'd have left it there, we'd have been fine. But then he felt like he also had to comment, chastise, I would say, on the length of my sermons, which is putting you on notice that whether you think this is wrong or not, keep it to yourself because I'm a little sensitive. And he, and to be fair, Ed had ADHD. So 10 minutes was too long for him. <clears throat> and I didn't feel it was fair. And he would kind of bug me about this. <clears throat> like he'd been to seminary. And so he kind of thought he knew about sermons. I, I do this every week. This is my business. <clears throat> Well, honestly, this really aggravated me, and it just, he kind of kept needling me, and it just, now i got to wash his feet. And I knew to do this with integrity, I had to settle this in, but he didn't know. So I didn't really need to go to Ed and deal with this, because I didn't want to bring him into this. He didn't know. I had to deal with this between me and Jesus. And it was some, took some doing. It wasn't so simple as Jesus just forgive me for being... Holding a grudge. I had to let it go. And it takes a little 
works up in there. And I did. What you see up there was a milestone that nobody knew then. Nobody knew what I just told you. In the end, Jesus served me more than I served Ed. And when we do that kind of thing, when we serve each other, swallow our pride, give up and forgive, we become more like Jesus. There's one more statement here in verse 35. Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I had referred to Jesus' prayer in John 17. He returns to this same idea in John 17, 23, when he asked the Father this, I have given them, the disciples, the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, I and them, and you and me, like we read before, so that they may be brought to complete unity that unity that we join in with God, then, here it is, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the third verse says this, our love for one another is essential to our witness in the world. Now on the face of it, this seems like a kind of underwhelming Outreach strategy. I mean, generally, folks in the neighborhood don't even know the real loving things you do for each other. They don't know if you bring meals. They don't know when you pray for somebody who's in trouble. They don't know when you teach their kids. They don't know the things you do. So how could they be drawn to Jesus? Right? How does that work? Our love for one another may not lead people to put their faith in Christ. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they'll become Christians. It says they'll know we're the disciples of Jesus. It will not necessarily lead people to put their faith in Christ, but will give them clear evidence of what it means when somebody does follow Jesus. They'll see what it means to be his disciple. The church really messed this up. Especially in the last couple years. Right? The world did not see that Christians love one another. Now, since I don't know you, I can say things that I don't know if anyone can hear that. But we didn't love one another enough to wear a mask, even if we thought it was stupid. We didn't love one another enough to take racial injustice seriously without getting all defensive about it, even if we didn't agree with all the conclusions. We didn't love one another enough to stay in the same church if we didn't agree with who you were voting on. But all these things, churches are dividing, pastors are getting beat up. Over this. But 
worked backwards, people could look at churches and go, that's what I thought. I was a hypocrite. So how is it supposed to work? How does it work here when we do that at times? Here's what I think we do. First of all, loving one another in Christ-like ways in the church over the long haul makes us good at loving others. If you can love these people day in and day out, do these kindness things, you are retrained so that when you meet somebody, your neighbor, somebody at the store, somebody at work, school, you have a capacity to love that they have not seen before because you give it out of grace. It's undeserving. You don't even know them. We not only are schooled in it, we have learned how delightful it is to love other people. It's rewarding. It's, it's, it's satisfying to do this great, good, grace-filled thing. And when we do this, some people are drawn to you because they don't know anybody else who loves like you do. What's more, our love for one another authenticates, authenticates the gospel to unbelievers. It makes it believable. I just talked about how it made it incongruous. Our professed faith made the gospel seem empty because of our behavior and our words. But when we do love each other, it, it creates this kind of authenticity. That's what Jesus is saying. They'll know you're my disciples in this way, by what you preach, by what you uh, put on your bumper, what's on the radio. No, they'll know it by how we love each other. Because that kind of relational strength is so unique. It's absolutely unique in the world. They don't see it anywhere else. When we do this, we treat each other like brothers and sisters, even when we're not, by blood. You're basically saying, Jesus didn't just save me. He gave me this capacity to love in this unusual way and gave me a family I never had before. And you want to know Jesus, he'll do that for you too. The result is that our love for one another creates a kind of gravitational pull to the gospel. Our love for each other creates this kind of gravitational pull to the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. I look at this and I go, I don't know if that's going to work. And I go, Jesus said it. It's not my call to decide if it's going to work. This is how he wants us to do it. One more thing. People around us are starved for the kinds of relationships that only Christians can enjoy. Now, not all Christians do enjoy these, but this is uniquely Christian. Other people have great friends, faithful friends, good friends that do nice things for each other. But the nature of that table of Christians, there's just nothing like it. There's no other way. No other religion, no other culture, no other community. It's like what Christians can do. Back in April, our uh, U.S. Surgeon General wrote an op-ed piece to the New York Times. He was talking about loneliness and how it was epidemic. 
And he said, at any moment, about one out of every two Americans is experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. This includes introverts and extroverts, rich and poor, the younger and older among folks. I wonder what we could do about that. I wonder what we could offer for lonely people. Imagine the impact on lonely people when they see genuine, sacrificial, delightful Christians at the cross. One morning I was standing in the coffee shop getting my second cup of coffee. And uh, so they have one place I like to go because I meet people. There's an a, a elderly lady that would be someone older than me standing next to me. And it's like, you go, no, you go, because both of us have time. We're both retired. And uh, we were kind of joking about that. And all of a sudden, <laughs> tears started running down her cheek. Uh, she says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sometimes my husband died a couple years ago, and sometimes I just get emotional. I said, uh, I'm sitting alone here. I said, with me. So uh, she came and sat with me. And I had just, I write a piece every week for uh, publication. And I had just written a piece that just came out that morning, about like a half an hour before we sat down. And it was about Kevin, actually. And I was telling her, I'm a writer, and can I read something I wrote? And, and she wouldn't let me. I asked where she went to church. She goes, I go to the Unity Church. Sounds good really bad. Uh, she says, we don't talk about sin. We don't really talk about who he is. But uh, good luck at the unity. It's only going to go so far. But I thought, I like this lady. God brought her in my path. I'm just going to be with her. And we occasionally meet. I tell him I read her article. We just talk. We have a good friendship. And I think, I just want her to be know she, she's loved, and someday in God's good time, he'll say, okay, we're into it now, and we'll, yeah, we talk about Jesus. Imagine if one of these lonely people can be invited into a family. One of the Psalms says that God sets the lonely in families, the, the orphans in families. They're the family. But we have to be that with each other. And you are. We love each other year in and year out. We wash each other's feet, so to speak. We eat at the same table. We draw closer and closer to Jesus together. We are not worth our salt if we don't love our brothers and sisters in that area. So I want to commend you today. I know from what Tim has told me that you are a church that does love one another. I know that your church can use listeners from your area who comes and goes and all that. I get that. Uh, I thank you for that. And uh, I bless you for that. Keep doing what you do. Do it more and more. And when the rub comes, take it out. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. A story. Uh, Jerome was one of the church fathers. He lived in four, about 400 A.D. Uh, and uh, he was writing a commentary about uh, for the book of Galatians, which had a section about 
Christian relationships. And he wrote this down. This is 400 or 300 years, 350 years after Jesus. Uh, he writes about John, the apostle who wrote this book. John lived the longest. He was very old when he died. He wasn't martyred like many of the others. And he uh, lived out his years in Ephesus, where he took care of Mary until she died. So um, uh, Jerome is recording a story, and this is what he said. This is written down. The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing, but little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. So now, let me close with prayer, and then we come to this table of our union with Jesus and each other. Thank you, Father, for this privilege you've given to me, this delightful service to these precious people. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, help us where in loving becomes hard or bewildering. We don't quite know what it means to do it. I pray that you would guide each one of us so that we can love well. In Christ's name.